Welcome to the podcast of River City Community Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.rivercitychicago.com. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, good morning, good morning, River City. Uh, Well, this Sunday, let's do a quick kind of overview of what we're going to do over the next few Sundays here. So this Sunday that we're in right now is the first Sunday of Lent, the season of Lent. Um, If you didn't grow up around that tradition, Lent is in the church calendar the 40 days leading up to um, Easter weekend. And so it's uh, believed to be modeled after, and I've been thinking, reflecting on this a lot because I think it adds some nuance. So it's, it's believed to be modeled after the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness, in the desert, um, after he was blessed by the voice of the Father and sent out on mission. And he was in the desert for 40 days doing prayer, fasting, reflection, getting himself ready, also acknowledging kind of the presence of evil and preparing himself for that. So that's historically what the uh, 40 days of Lent is about, is preparing for that. And so um, we kind of intended to uh, let our Acts series bleed into that and then transition. So we're going to do two more weeks in the book of Acts, and um, we'll try to really clearly tie those to the season of Lent. And then starting in March, we're going to do some very directed reflections on Lent. And particularly, we're going to really focus on the cross for the four Sundays coming up to um, Easter Sunday. And you know, to really understand Christianity, you have to hold the cross and the resurrection together. They both represent something so uniquely powerful about who God is, who Jesus is. And, um, you know, Easter is such a fun time to celebrate the resurrection and reflect on what that means. But the cross is such an important part, too. Like, why is it that Jesus Christ had to incarnate into human flesh? Why is it that he had to die on this cross? So we're going to do four weeks of kind of different angles reflecting on that. So that's where we'll be going um, starting in March. Sound good? So two more weeks in the book of Acts. If you're just joining us, we've been, Acts is the kind of historical account of the early church. They've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the life of Jesus, and then the book of Acts. And so we split it into two parts. We did part one of Acts was in um, uh, the fall. We, we covered chapters one through seven. In a lot of ways, Acts divides up according to the way Jesus describes the Great Commission. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, um, Jesus kind of notes four locations along the way. He says uh, he's sending out his disciples to be witnesses, to bear witness to Christ and his kingdom. He says you'll go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And in chapters 1 through 7, we really see the church get established in Judea and Jerusalem, and we covered that and the importance of that in the fall. And then uh, in this last stretch, kind of part two of it, we'll put a bookmark in it next week, uh, we really looked at as the church, as the gospel, as the story moves from Jerusalem and Judea out to the rest of the world, starting with Samaria and then the kind of literal ends of the earth. And so um, just in kind of terms of review, because it'll set up what we're going to do these next two weeks, last week we looked at the importance of the church in Antioch. That's in chapters 11 through 13. And when you just read through the book of Acts, it's easy to just jump right through the church of Antioch. But we really try to stop there for a minute and say this church is incredibly important because the church of Antioch in so many ways is the reference point for the church through the rest of the Bible. Every other church that happens from this point forward models after, formulates after the church in Antioch. It's also significant because it's where the Apostle Paul is trained as a pastor. He had been an evangelist up to that point, but he really learns how to be a pastor in Antioch. And so um, Antioch is so much of what River City is, is modeled after. Antioch was in an urban center, in fact, third largest city, which is interesting. Chicago is the third largest city. 
Um, so our worship pillars built on that. What brought all these folks together was kind of worshiping the risen, resurrected Christ. And then we see in Antioch, it was a very racially divided city, 18 different nation groups divided by walls in the city of Antioch. And the spirit of reconciliation was such an such an integral part to the early church in Antioch, and it's what Paul carried to all the other churches. And then even our neighborhood development really comes from there. You know, the first thing they did in Antioch was respond to the famine, send Paul and Barnabas to respond to the famine there. And so it was a very holistic form of the gospel. So I mention all that because Antioch becomes now the sending point. Antioch is the pivot for the rest of the New Testament. Every church that's going to be planted from this point forward comes out of Antioch. And so what we're going to do these next two weeks, we're going to look at kind of the first two things the Apostle Paul does, give kind of a sense of he becomes kind of the primary character now as the gospel is, is transitioning out and um, going out into the, into the broader world. And so we'll do Acts chapter 14 this week and Acts chapter 16 next week, um, both in the province of Galatia. So uh, with that as kind of our overview, if you'll go ahead and open to the book of Acts chapter 14. We're going to read it together. You can stand up. All right, we are going to read, um, we're going to skip through one, verses 1 through 7. I'll kind of just give context of it after we read it. We're going to go ahead and read verses 8 through, I think we'll go till 20. Acts 14, 8 through 20. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got back up and went into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, this is another one of those accounts where I think having a little bit of a sense of what's happening historically in the bigger picture helps understand it. So we're going to do church geek a little bit here and, and start with a map. So some of you love this stuff. You'll love this. Some of you don't as much, but you can bear with me. So um, just to get a kind of a sense um, of what's happening here and where Paul's at. So um, if you look on this map, um, this gives a sense of kind of the general area where, where Paul is moving here. So when Acts chapter 13 ends, Paul is in Antioch. So there's two Antiochs. Um, there's two Antiochs, which can make things confusing. This is the Antioch over here, the one that's on the border of what would be modern-day Syria and Turkey. This was called Antioch of Syria. This was the one that was the third biggest city. This was the one that was very powerful in the Roman Empire. It was called the Rome of the East by many people. So that's where the church, that's the beachhead. That is, that is going to be where Mother Church always is at, where Barnabas and um, um, 
Paul are sent out from and where they will return to. And so at the end of Acts chapter 13, you can look at this in your text when you see it, um, the Gentile community is responding very well to the message of Jesus Christ, but it's the Jewish leaders who are becoming very upset. So they threaten to kill Paul and Barnabas, and so Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch. So they come up, they circle around, it's about 100 miles, come up to Iconium, it's another major city. They go up to the province of Galatia. Next week we'll see the actual founding of the church in Galatia, which is where the letter of Galatians eventually comes from. Um, So they go up to Iconium, uh, about 90 miles. Um, This is what happens in verses 1 through 7, so you can look at that later on. there, Paul does what he does everywhere. He speaks to both, you know, he starts in the synagogue, and so he's particularly talking to the Jews in Iconium. But the religious leaders from Antioch follow him up to Iconium and start up again. He's, he's really being chased. So now he comes down from Iconium to Lystra, and Lystra is where this happens, all right? So a handful of things that make this text unique of Paul's address here um, in Lystra. Um, for one, it appears... Of everywhere Paul goes, this seems to be the smallest Jewish population of anywhere he goes. So there's no synagogue in Lystra, which is unlike any other place he goes. So everywhere else Paul goes, even heavily pagan Gentile areas, there's still synagogues. So like if you jump ahead, for instance, to Acts chapter 17 when he's in Athens, he goes to the synagogue first, talks to the Jews, then kind of engages kind of the you know, secular pagan Gentile culture. So there's no Jews here. There's no synagogue. Um, so it's exclusively um, kind of a Gentile disinterested or either unaware of the Jewish God, which makes this an interesting place. This is also the first time we see the Apostle Paul preach to non-Jewish crowd, All right? So up till this point, we see Paul having, you know, he, he, he could really switch going to Jewish and Gentile circles, and he would adapt how he talked about the gospel in both. So this is the first time that he does this. Um, Lystra is also an interesting place. Lystra is a military outpost for the Roman Empire. So you know how, it's probably not exactly the same, but you know how the U.S. has non-U.S. places where they kind of have military bases. This is a military base for the Roman Empire here. So it's kind of got this, that is a backdrop. Um, just as a point of interest in the larger biblical story, too, this is also where Timothy and his family are from, uh, where they live, is in Lystra. So um, most believe this is probably what we just read, is where Paul met his young protege, Timothy, for the first time. In Second Timothy 3, I believe it is, he refers back to this when he's stoned. Young Timothy saw um, Paul being stoned here, and this would have been really their introduction. And on the second time around, Paul comes back on a second missionary journey to build on the church that he starts here, and it's in the second journey that he invites Timothy to be his young protege. So you can go ahead and take that down. Thanks, JC. So that's some of what's happening in Lystra. You track with me so far? All right, so, so that's kind of what Paul and Barnabas are walking into. So now they come into Lystra, verse 8, and it says there's a man there who was lame, who had been that way from birth and never walked, reminiscent. This happens other times in the book of Acts as well. So he hears Paul while Paul is preaching. Paul looks directly at him. There's just kind of this moment of them locking eyes, sees the faith that he has, tells him to be healed. This man stands up to his feet, jumps and begins to walk. An incredible miracle, which just to kind of again put this in the larger frame of Acts, this seems to be the case everywhere everywhere the apostolic ministry goes where the gospel is not yet there. It almost always starts not with the people receiving the proclamation, responding to the proclamation, but usually first with some kind of a miracle, some kind of a healing, some type of a demonstration of the power of God in everyday kinds of ways, and then that tends to open up people to hearing more about Jesus. And so going into verse 11, um, the crowd sees what Paul has done, and so they, they start, they, very unique response what happens here. They say, the gods have come down to us in human form. 
Barnabas they called Saul, Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So another, we'll take a step back here just to put, um, I, I don't know how you would kind of know all this just kind of in passing through, but um, uh, th- this is not unexpected because of the history of that particular city. So um, they were very much, the, the people of this city very much followed the Greek gods, the, the ancient mythological Greek gods. Um, uh, I, 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 I'm considering myself a pseudo-expert now because I read all up on this this week. I didn't know this before this week. But so they were called the gods of Olympus. Have you, have you, if you, I know you remember this from the, so, so so there were supposed to be all these gods. Then there were the gods of Olympus and the gods of. Does anybody remember that? Um, it was like Titan. Do you watch these movies? It's in all the movies, right? Uh, what was uh, I can't remember what the other. So, so there's the big battle at Mount Olympus, and the gods who won were like kind of the super gods. Those are really the main gods that the people followed, huh? The, what is it? Titans. Yes, Titans. Thank you. There was the Titans. Yeah, the God of the Titans lost. Thank you. And so there were, they, they were called the 12 gods of, uh, of Olympus. So you had um, Poseidon, who was the god of the seas. You had Aphrodite, who was the goddess of beauty and love. You had Demeter, who was the god of the crops and of agriculture. You had Apollo, who was the god of art. You had Ares, who was the god of war. You had Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. You had Dionysus, who was the god of wine, parties, and ecstasy. That's probably the one I would have been following if I wasn't a Christian. Um, and then you had um, Zeus and Hermes, these two that are referred to. So Zeus was the god of the skies and also was considered to be the god, the, the, the leader of all of these gods. And then Hermes was, is kind of um, the ancient mythology had it, was the son of Zeus. And he was also the messenger on behalf of the gods. And so this is... This is the kind of landscape that Paul and Barnabas are entering into that, that, and this wouldn't have been just here in Lystra, some other places, but you had these 12 gods, and so people would make idols and sacrifices to whichever god they most needed help from, right? So if you're trying to grow your crops, you're going to make, you know, a sacrifice to, um, uh, to Demeter. If you're pursuing beauty or love or marriage, you're going to make a sacrifice to Aphrodite, right? If um, you're searching for wisdom, you'd make a sacrifice to Athena, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in this particular area, though, there was a very strong legend that's been reinforced by history, not just through the biblical account. There's a very strong legend that Zeus and Hermes in particular were going to enter into the human experience as mortals and come if enough sacrifices had been made, if enough devotion had been shown, um, if the right kind of things had happened, that Zeus and Hermes would come as mortals to this area. And so a long time that someday Zeus here in Lystra is that you've got a legend that's been around for a long time that someday Zeus and Hermes may come. And so it's really interesting. So you get Paul and, and Silas coming, and they're talking about Jesus Christ. Right? They're talking about the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ who's come to bring salvation. But no matter how much they talk about Jesus, the people on the other side, all they hear is, this is Zeus and Hermes. This is the fulfillment of the legend that we had always heard. So that's why you get this very extravagant response in this very specific kind of calling out of names. In fact, you even get, they had a high priest to Zeus outside of the city who would take the sacrifices from the people. So even he comes and is, you know, bringing these. And the, like, unimportant part of me wonders, like, when, because what did they call? They called, they called um, Paul Hermes and Barnabas Zeus. I, like, totally imagine a bickering argument afterwards between Paul and uh, Silas, like, why did you get to be Zeus? Why did you get to be, uh, you know, why did they? but anyway, I don't think that's probably what they were most thinking about. So, so the people say, this is Zeus and this is Hermes. And so that's why you get this kind of um, response from the people because of this particular legend. All right. So a lot of background to get to really what I want to make is just kind of the short and simple reflection. 
So once that's the case, Paul is going to now preach to them. He's going to preach, this is the classic word for the gospel, the good news of the gospel. That's what gospel means. It's good news. It's a proclamation of good news about Jesus Christ. And so Paul is going to make a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ to these folks, right? to these folks who make different sacrifices to the different 12 gods of Olympus who are hoping that these gods will bless their particular endeavors. Paul is going to preach the good news. And what, where this is significant for Acts, the book of Acts, but I would say even significant for us now, definitely I think even significant for, for Lent, is what we see here is what continues through the rest of the book of Acts, that basically in a nutshell, Paul makes two different kinds of gospel presentations in the book of Acts. When he's going to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, he's got one emphasis when he's with the Jews, and he's got a different emphasis when he's with these kind of this, the Gentiles who are kind of involved in the Greek God system. And I think they're both worth reflecting on. I don't think one's more important than the other. They're certainly not contradictory. They just emphasize different parts of the good news. And so one chapter before in Acts chapter 13, I'm not going to cite this, but you can go back and look at it. We hear him give a gospel presentation to the Jews, um, and that's got kind of one format. And then here we see him give a gospel presentation to the people in Lystra, and it's got a different kind of a feel. And um, whenever he goes to a Jewish place, we see it sounds more like chapter 13. Whenever he goes to a place that's got the Greek gods, it sounds much more like chapter 14. And so that's really my last ambition for the day. I'd like to kind of just, in my own words, kind of summarize these two and use it as a way even to reflect on Lent, because that's what Lent is about, right? Lent is about the good news and the bad news, if you want to say it that way. It's about the bad news of where we're at without God, and that's a lot of what Lent is, is trying to be sober-minded about that, right? What, what the desperate condition of humanity without God, and then reflecting on the good news of what God does for us through Jesus Christ. And so, um, yeah, so, so we'll just kind of put these two next to each other, and that'll be kind of our final reflection. So you, you tracking with me on, on that so far? So when Paul would be in Jewish settings, and again, you can go back to church, chapter 13, you can see these the way laid out. Um, when, when Paul was in Jewish settings, which also included the term Acts uses a lot called God-fearing Gentiles, which was a very specific term. It was, it was people who were not born into the Jewish culture, but who were devoted to the Jewish God. They were God-fearing Gentiles. And so um, you can even logically follow this, really. It's, it, it, when, when Paul's in those kind of settings, he's not speaking to people who are anti-God. All right? He's speaking to people who, who are already attempting to be, they've got a sense that there is a God. Right? There's a sense that there's a God, and there's a sense that there's a God who has standards. There's a, there's a sense that there's a God who takes account that wants people to live in a certain kind of a way. And so when Paul would come into these settings, he would acknowledge that. And so he would really do the same thing in both cases. He'd say kind of bad news before the good news. So to those who already believed in God and believed in the law, is how the Jews thought of it, that you had to meticulously follow the, the, the Jewish law in order to curry God's favor, Paul would start the bad news. The bad news would go like this when he would talk to Jews or God-fearing Gentiles. Paul would say, the bad news is this. If the law is going to be what saves you, then you're in a whole lot of trouble, right? Because even if you're a really good person, there's still so much of the law you've fallen short of, whether it's in your own mind or in action. There have been times you've gossiped. There have been times you lied. There have been times you have lusted. There have been times that you have envied, right? There have been times that you've been jealous. There have been times when you were called to do something that you didn't do, to love your neighbor in a certain kind of a way, right? Um, There's a repetitive cycle of falling short of what the law requires of us. You might be a little bit better of a law keeper than I am, you know, but the bottom line is if we look to the law or whatever synonym you want to use to that, to rules, to obedience, to follow God's commandments, if what we look to is the obedience and adherence to God's commandments to be saved, then we are all in trouble, 
right? Because the very same thing we're using to say is our salvation will be that which curses us because we cannot maintain or hold up to that standard. And we'll play all these tricks. We'll try to pretend we're better than everybody else, right? We'll try to hold our, we'll pick certain kinds of ones and say, I follow these, so therefore I'm feeling a little bit more self-righteous. But at the end of the day, when you look to the law to be saved, it is a hopeless and despairing situation. That's the heart of what, what Paul would say when talking to God-fearing Gentiles, right? He's, and, and this is, he's going to do this on both sides. It's a naming for people what they maybe have not named for themselves. That Before you can get to the good news of Jesus Christ, you get to get to the bad news of life without Jesus Christ, right? And so that would be the bad news, that if you look to the law to be saved, there is no hope for you. And then you transition to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ was you don't have to look to the law to be saved, that when Jesus Christ came as the promised Messiah, when Jesus Christ came as the incarnated Son of God, as a human being, he fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the law. He hit every single threshold that had to be hit. He was the perfect human being. And by doing that, it set him up to fulfill what had been the promises of the entire Old Testament for the Jews. There was all these different symbols of recognition that there needed to be a third party. There needed to be some kind of a substitute that would take on the punishment of falling short of the law. Um, sometimes it was, you know, the lamb, the perfect lamb. Sometimes it was the scapegoat. There was this idea of a goat having a sin put on it and sent outside of the community. Um, it was the Passover imagery of the blood being put on there and not their own record, but the record of the slain one that led to salvation. But Paul would, Paul would move towards this as the good news for those who are God-fearing Gentiles that, yes, of course God wants us to be obedient, but if you look to the law for your salvation, there's nothing but despair and hopelessness there. And the good news can be found only in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, that's really important. When we move to this next one, chapter 14, it doesn't minimize that at all. That's one of the ways to very clearly articulate the good news of Jesus Christ, right? But now when we go to Lystra, notice that's not how Paul talks when he's with the people in Lystra. He doesn't say, you're trying to follow God and do your best, but the law's not going to save you. He doesn't say that. Why? Because none of them are trying to follow a single God and be in intimate relationship and devoted to that God. Um, this is maybe slightly more crass than, I don't know, I, I don't know if I have the right to say it, but so much of how they looked at gods, if you want to say that, was self-serving. Right? It, was, it, was, it was a recognition that at some level there is the supernatural, there, is, there are deities out there, but it wasn't based on love or devotion. It was based on how can I get the gods to help me do what I want to do? Right? How can I get the god of the crops help me to have a good crop? How can I have the goddess of love help me to find love? How can I, how can I access the divine to get the divine to do for me what I need to do? Right? So it's just a totally different worldview that Paul was confronting when he was in these settings than when he was in the Jewisher Gentile, um, God-fearing kind of place. And so he changes it. He, it's still the good news of Jesus Christ he's going to tell them about, but he says it in a very different way, and we, can, we, we read it. What does he say there? Essentially, he says this. He says, starting with the bad news first, what he says to them is, look, I see that you're recognizing God's, he does kind of similar language, it's in Acts 17. He says, I see you making a memorial to these unknown gods. But what he's essentially saying is the bad news is the, you're looking to these, God, to these false gods to do something that they could never do in the first place. And you're not looking to the one true living God who actually could do what you want, but you're not even coming, looking to the God of life to understand what that God wants. 
That's really the heartbeat of what he says. He, he, he doesn't talk about the law. He doesn't talk about rules. Not that those are important. He goes right to this idol worship. He goes right to the memorials that they're making to these gods and saying, you know, maybe there's, without even judging what the motive is, you're making these offerings, you're making these sacrifices to these false gods. You're asking them to be able to do things for you that you can't do, that they can't do. And you're going to spend your whole life making these offerings to gods who don't exist, that can't actually do anything for you. And then you're going to miss what's all around you. I love the word, the way that Paul says this. He talks about the testimony of God that's all around them. Do you see that, how he said that in there? He says, uh, yeah, the, the heart of what he's saying to them is in verse 15. Actually, JC, if you don't mind, bring that up one more time. Um, verse 15. This is really the heart of his um, good news presentation. He says, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Quick word on worthless. It's a really strong word. It kind of means empty, or it even has this connotation of it makes a promise it can't fulfill. So it really is a powerful word, he says. You're looking to these worthless things instead of to the living God. And he, he really focuses because there's not, again, when he's, in the, when he's in the synagogues, they already believe in the Hebrew Scriptures. The God-fearing Gentiles already believe in the Hebrew Scriptures. He can appeal to those to make his pace. He doesn't appeal to Scripture here because they're not looking to Scripture. So instead, he appeals to the, crea- the creative nature of God, that you, that, that you need to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he has let all nations go their own way. And I love this language in verse 17. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So hopefully you can follow what he's saying there. He's saying, he's saying, do you see the irony of what's happening here? You're going to false gods asking for the things that they can't give when the God of all creation already gives these things to you. And it's not on a quid pro quo basis. It's not, you were good, so therefore I give you rain. You were bad, now I take away the rain, right? You were good, so therefore I give you joy. You were bad, so I take away the joy. He says, no, that is the very testimony of God, is that in God's grace, he has shown kindness. He has shown provision. He has shown joy to the people. It's, it's, it's this sense of, of what Paul's saying to them. is like, look, the very thing your hearts long for is already all around you. Right? But by turning to these false gods, to these fake gods, you actually turn your eyesight away from the one thing that can save you, that can sustain you, that can actually bring you life. And you look to these false gods to provide that for you. Right? That's the heart of his gospel presentation here. It's the gospel heart of it in Acts 17 other places. And that one, I would say, is also super relevant to us. And I actually think probably both of us, need, all of us need to hear both of them, but probably some of us more resonate with one or the other. Now, now it would be tempting to kind of miss ourselves in this because the people in Lystra are actually bowing down to physical idols, to they actually have names on these other gods. But really, it's not any different than the world we live in, is it? I mean, in that world, there was a technical name of the god of money, but we don't have to have that name or have to have a physical statue to bow down to the god of money, do we? I mean, this whole nation bows down to the God of money. All, all of us at some level bow down to the God of money. And this is what happens when you look to a false God. It's not complicated. You don't actually have to get down on your knees and worship. All you have to do is look to that thing to provide some sense of meaning and value for you. You just have to look to something to be that which creates a sense of meaning, right? Something that you worship, even if you're not singing songs to it, but you worship, you, you, you put worth on it. And just as importantly, it puts worth on you. 
right? So money will always be one of those that's a potential idol where we look to it for, for worth. Um, lifestyle or image will always be a potential idol that we look to for worth, right? To, to be seen a certain kind of way in a certain kind of environment means so much to some of us, right? Or to be seen as successful, that so easily can become its own idol, right? It doesn't have to have a name like Apollo on it to be an idol, right? To be seen as needed or to be seen as loved can be seen as such an idol, can be such an idol. And one of the things that makes an idol an idol, almost always the thing, just in the same way when they were sacrificing to the god of crops or something like that, it's, it's not bad to want your crops to do bad, right? Idols by themselves are not usually, are almost never a bad thing. It's when you attach too much meaning to them, right? When you worship them, when you long for them, when your heart is desperate for them. And to say it in the negative, you know, you, oftentimes the only way you can see the way that you kind of had idols in your own life is when they get torn away, right? When there's this just emptiness, this, this sense of my life has no meaning, that's when we, can, we really discover that in our own ways we have idols as well. And I'm, I'm talking about this in a devotional way. I mean, I think on both of these, for the good news of Jesus Christ, there's always a first time, yes, right? There's somebody that didn't, say yes to Jesus, and we say yes for the first time. But these two gospel presentations, this isn't just for people who don't follow Jesus, right? We both need to be reminded, we all need to be reminded of both of these all the time, right? That we can actually look to the law, to the rules, to our behavior, to be that which saves us, or that we look to other false gods to save us, right? That yes, we say Jesus, we say God, and yet there's something our heart craves for, and without it, we don't feel whole. We don't feel complete, right? It's a ancient world we're looking at here in this passage, but, uh, but, but what Paul is trying to reveal, trying to confront, is no different for us than it is for them. He says, at the end of the day, and this is really the concluding statement, I love just the simplicity with which he says in verse 15. He says, he says we're bringing you the good from these worthless things and turn to we receive the good news. We're just telling you to turn away from these worthless things and turn towards the living God. Right, that is exactly what repentance means, to turn around, to turn away. And he says that at the end of the day, what he's calling people to do is so simple, to turn away from worthless things and turn towards the living God. And as we use this passage as a way to kind of consider Lent, consider these kind of 40 days, considering the magnitude of what Jesus had to do and what he did do, uh, I, I think these two ways of looking at the gospel are a really helpful way to remember what the bad news is without Jesus but what the good news is with Jesus. Right? That the bad news being, if we think that our behaviors, our, the law, our obedience, is that which saves us, we will always live with a sense of shame, with a sense of, I didn't do enough, I'm not doing enough, I'm not measuring up. Right? We'll look to other people to see if we're good enough. It's got all kinds of destructive kind of outgrowths when we listen to the bad news instead of the good news. But the good news of that being, we were never expected to look to the law. We were never expected to look to our own behavior to be that which saves us. That that's so much of what this next 40 days represents. That's what the cross represents is Jesus saying, I'm the one you look to for salvation. And it's only through me that you can come in anyway. So yes, be obedient. If you love me, you'll obey. But you don't obey to get into heaven. You obey because you're already in. You obey because you're already united with me. You obey because you've already been fully immersed into the love of God. That's that's some good news that really helps with some bad news, isn't it? And then this Acts 14 version of it, to just remember that like the people in Lystra, we all look to false gods to find that sense of meaning, to find that sense of value, 
to find that sense of worthiness, to have something or someone tell us that we're special, that, that we matter, that we're worthy. And Paul says, that's the bad news. Then the bad news is what we're looking to can't do it. Not, it's not just wrong. It can't do what you want it to do. Right? That's why it's worthless. It's not just it's bad. It can't do what it wants you to do. And yeah. So he says, turn away from those worthless things and look to the one who's the living God, the one who already is a God of abundance, whether you've looked to him or not. But when we look to God, when we turn away from those worthless idols, it positions us, it postures us to live fully alive in the good news of Jesus Christ and reminds us that what Jesus did on that cross, what he did when he rose, was to bring us fully into the abundance of that God. And so... Um, I think it's got both dimension and it's simple all at the same time, right? That bad news, good news. And um, I think the way Paul holds these two together is such a model for us. So I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team back up. And I just, as we talk about being kind of, sing about being kind of filled up with God, for us to remember that that's some of what Lent is for, is to remember the bad news of what we are without Jesus, but to remember the just overwhelming promises that come with when we turn away from the worthless things and turn towards Jesus, asking to be filled up with God's goodness and love and mercy and joy, that this is very much exactly what God intends for us. So join us as we sing back to God in worship. Let's close our eyes here for a moment. I just a couple more minutes of reflection as we just sit in the presence of God together. The image is coming to me as I'm just reflecting on the text, sitting in worship, is the way that the way that Paul framed the good news in Acts 14 is, I think, a really helpful way to think of both Good Friday and Easter, if we could say it that way, the cross and the resurrection. Remember, Paul says, turn away from these worthless things. And that word worthless, it's empty, it's meaningless. It's something that makes a promise that can't deliver. Turn away from these empty things. Turn toward the living God. So we reflect on the heavy part first. Much of what Lent is, is reflecting on the reality of sin, the reality that Christ had to take it on, head on. And the fact that we have and do turn to worthless things at the cosmic level is not insignificant. It does damage. It does damage at the spiritual level. It was something that had to be accounted for. And yet, we remember that Paul calls this the good news, not the bad news. He says the good news is when we turn away from those things. Because of what Christ did, this is the resurrection part, because of what Christ did, we're not the ones who have to pay for that damage. We're not the ones who have to fix those broken things. We're not the ones who have to be held accountable for that we can simply turn to the living God and receive the overwhelming and abundant gift of God's love. We can turn to the one who's the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of the seas and all that is in it. That God, that God of abundance, that God that's over all heaven and earth invites us into God's heart. So God, we claim that. We, we, we reflect on the significance of what you did, but we don't do it in a way where we carry the burden. We, we reflect on it in the way that you did what had to be done for us to just simply be able to turn away and turn towards you. That's it. That's all you ask of us. All the magnitude of God's wealth is available from us 
to us by simply turning away and turning to. That's it. That's all you ask us to do. So God, may we have the courage and the boldness to trust that that's who you are and what you've invited us to, to turn away from worthless things and turn towards the living God and to drink deeply of the riches that come with that. May we walk out of here knowing we are loved, that turning to worthless things isn't just wrong, it's foolish, that you are the only one who can hold us up, that can sustain us, that can whisper those words that remind us that we are daughters and sons of the Almighty King. That's the only thing that really holds us up high. So we just sang it. We just read it. You, we already know you're going to do your part. May we have the courage now to turn away from these worthless things and turn towards you. And all God's people said, amen. Let's go ahead and rise together for the final benediction. And I would simply remind us of those words from the Apostle Paul, the good news as he calls it. That's all that we have to do is turn away from these worthless, empty things turn towards the living God, the creator God. And all God's people said, amen. Love you. You gotta take